Well, this morning, we're going to return to the book of Judges. And again, like last week, I'm not going to read an opening passage, but I will be reading passages as we go through, uh, as we go through the sermon, actually. So maybe what we could do here is open up in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless this consideration of his word. Father, I stand with my brothers and sisters in Christ here in the sanctuary of Church of the Atonement. We call it a sanctuary because we believe that your Holy Spirit is here because you've gathered your people here. That in the truest sense, we are your sanctuary, one of many. And that's a matter of your grace and your kindness to us. And so when we open up the word that was inspired by your Holy Spirit and realize that he's here with us now, we have one request, that your Holy Spirit would now write these words, the truth of this passage, on our hearts as we hear it preached. And I would ask you that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. By the way, I, I don't know, I suspect... You read the Martin Luther quote in the program today. <laughs> Some plague the people with too long sermons, for the faculty of listening is a tender thing and soon becomes weary and satiated. Well, I intend to ignore that completely. <laughs> There's a great deal for us to learn from the life of Gideon. The story of Gideon in the book of Judges is the longest of any of the stories of Judges in that book. And uh, just to re recap a little bit, last week what we really were looking at was the rise of the judge Gideon. Last week we saw how the angel of the Lord sat at a nearby tree, a terebinth tree, while Gideon was crouching in a wine press and beating out wheat in a wine press. Why? Well, to hide it from the Midianites who were constantly coming in as infesting locust hordes, just taking everything. And the angel of the Lord called to Gideon, and he called him to defeat, to lead Israel and defeat those Midianites. And from the very beginning, Gideon was deeply aware of his inadequacy. He was deeply aware of his own weaknesses. Uh, when he looked at himself, he was full of, full of doubt. And so he protested. He was from the weakest clan of Manasseh. He was the weakest member, the junior member of his family. And the angel of the Lord gave him a sign in response to Gideon's request for a sign. He caused fire to spring from a rock and to consume a sacrifice that Gideon had prepared. And then we saw after this calling, this commissioning of Gideon, that before anything else, he was to defeat the Midianites, right? But before anything else, the Lord commanded Gideon to remove every support for pagan beliefs and pagan practices from his home. So Gideon tore down the altar to Baal that was there in his home. It was really the home of his father. And he replaced it with an altar to the Lord. He tore down a shrine to the female goddess Asherah. And he used the wood of the shrine to build a fire and sacrifice a bull, which was the symbol for Baal, on the altar to the Lord. He was, he was rejecting everything. He risked his life for doing that before his family and before the town. But that was the first order of business. For a man got us called 
For man, God is raising up. And all these things happened in the home village called Ophrah. And Ophrah was near the Jezreel Valley, or the Valley of Jezreel, the plain on which many battles have occurred, on which the Battle of Armageddon will occur at the end of time. And so as we look this week at our passage, we continue with that frame of reference of, of looking at these events unfolding from the frame of reference of Ophrah, this village in which Gideon was raised and lived. Now I want to read from Judges chapter 6, verses 33 and following. This is what we read. Now all the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east came together. And they crossed the Jordan River and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. That was his clan. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh. That was his tribe. And they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Those are other tribes of the north of Israel. And they went up to meet him. Where? At Ophrah. So imagine, you're in Ophrah right now, and this little village has been inundated with 32,000 Israelite soldiers, while 135,000 Midianites with their allies are on the plain below in the valley of Jezreel. And Gideon is clearly aware, keenly aware still of his inadequacy, of his weakness. So he lays a, sh a sheep's fleece on the ground and he says to the Lord, if there is dew on the fleece alone, that's next morning, and it's dry on all the ground around, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And God condescended to him. It was very kind to him. The next morning, Gideon went out, and sure enough, he fills a bowl with water from having wrung out that wet sheep's fleece, but the ground is dry all around, no dew at all. But still, Gideon is unpersuaded. So he says, let not, verses 39 and 40, let not your anger burn against me. Let me just once more, please, let me test just once more with a fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and all the ground let there be dew, wetness. And the Lord made that happen the next morning. So Gideon moves his army down from Ophrah to the spring of Herod in the valley of Jezreel just south of the Midianite army. So they can basically see each other. At least they know where they are. So that's Gideon's 32,000 versus the Midianites' 135,000. And God says to Gideon, the people with you is too many for me to give the Midians into their hand. You've got too many soldiers. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Isn't that amazing? That's verse 2 of chapter 7. If too many people. If your 32,000 go out and defeat 135,000, you'll just say it was a really good day for us. We just, we did great. We were amazing. That's not, that's not what I have in mind. And I guess it raises the question, doesn't it? The question is, is the Lord really concerned with who gets the credit? And the answer is, yes! <laughs> He's absolutely concerned. 
But why? Why? Is it for pride's sake? Does the Lord see our human pride is as some sort of, in some sort of competition with his own pride? No. In fact, God has no pride at all. But this is what pride does. Human pride causes people to believe lies about themselves, about their own sufficiency. It does. It causes people to deny the God who made them, though they pay him lip service. It leads people to deny their need for redemption and destroy, to destroy their capacity to humble themselves. You know, pride does not lead to people's downfall. Pride is their downfall. Pride separates earth from heaven. Pride unites earth with hell. Pride turns Israelites into Canaanites. Pride, or self-conceit, is what C.S. Lewis called the great sin. Because it's the sin behind our sins. It's the complete, he said, the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is how the devil became the devil. So the Lord orders all of Gideon's soldiers, who are fearful and trembling, to go home. And 22,000 of them go home. And 10,000 of them remain. And then the Lord says to Gideon, the people are still too many. Chapter 7, verse 4. And he orders those who lap water, you know, with their tongues like a dog, to be separated from those who kneel down to drink. And there are just 300 lappers. And the Lord chooses them. And he sends the rest of them home. And again, the question is why? You know, some scholars insist that the lappers were more vigilant. They were somehow more valiant. Do you really believe that? I mean, uh, would you entrust the nation's security to this man? Why don't you put up the slide for me there? Yes, would you trust the nation's security to that man? Would you say that is the man who's going to deliver my country? I don't think so. I think not. The Lord's point in winnowing the army was not to identify and separate out the superheroes. It was to ensure that no one could claim the least credit from the coming victory. But first, the Lord gives Gideon one more sign. He tells him, if you are afraid, in other words, if you're still afraid, chapter 7, verse 10, go down to the Midian camp with your servant, listen, listen. And Gideon does. And there, Gideon overhears one soldier recounting a dream he had to another soldier. So the dreamer tells his buddy he saw a barley cake tumble into the Midian camp, overturn and flatten the tent that was erected there. That would have been the pavilion. That would have been where the, where the leadership was. That was, that was the representative uh, or symbol, as it were, of the, of the whole army. And his buddy replies, why, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. What an amazing interpretation that is. And so what we have here is, with Gideon is we've had 
a sign, the original sacrifice, after sign, after sign, the two fleeces, after sign, now the dream, and why? Why were all those signs given? Why did God give Gideon those signs? Because Gideon knew how inadequate he was to do God's will. He knew he was inadequate to do God's will. He might be able to chop wheat crouching down in a wine press, but when it came to doing what God was calling him to do and being who God was calling him to be, he realized, he knew he was inadequate. And so again and again, he asks for reassurance. And the Lord gives it to him and does not despise him, does not chide him for his lack of faith. He's saying his essence in his cries to God, help me rely on you. I, I cannot do this if I'm not relying on you. Help me rely on you. And God very graciously is teaching Gideon faith. So Gideon divides the 300 lappers into three groups of 100. And he places them around the Midianite camp at night. And on his signal, when he blows his trumpet... Everybody breaks stone jars, blows trumpets, and holds up torches. Notice there, there were no spears, there were no bows and arrows, there were no swords, there were no knives, they had no weapons. And the Midianite army was so panicked that it destroyed itself. But in chapter 7, verse 10, notice what Gideon orders them to do also. He told them that after they blew their trumpets, they must give this battle cry. Are you ready? For the Lord and for Gideon. Can you say that with me? For the Lord and for Gideon. And they do say that, basically. For the Lord and for Gideon. From this point, God's voice is no longer heard in the account of Gideon's life, and neither is his help ever sought again. You know, for God and for me, folks, that's really always for me and for God. And pride alone leads a man to say, do this for God and for me. Pride is a complete anti-God state of mind, whether or not it's wrapped in religious garb. Remember Jericho? And how the walls came down in Jericho? And when that happened, what did Joshua say as he called the people of Israel after going around seven days? What did he say to them? He said, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Not... The Lord and I have given you the city. The Lord has given you the city. And these people, this army of 300 of Gideon, did no more to defeat the Midianite camp than Joshua's troops did to tear down those walls of Jericho. It was God who defeated the Midianites. That was to be perfectly clear. Verse 22 of chapter 7, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. This is the Midianites. They, they all started fighting each other, and then the army fled. But what happens next? 
What does Gideon do next? Then he calls thousands and thousands of soldiers to himself from Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh and Ephraim. Let's have the next slide if we can. This is a map. This is a map of northern Israel. And the red circle in the top of the map, if you can see it, see it with the purple lines there, that's, that's where the enemy was encircled. That is where they turned on each other. They turned on themselves and started killing each other. And the black arrows show where they fled. They fled south, 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 south. They crossed the Jordan River and went east, 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 east of Succoth and Penuel, and then down to Karkor. At least that's where the, that's where the kings went. And so that's exactly what Gideon does now. He's defeated, you know, the army is defeated. They're out of Israel, but he starts chasing them. He's pursuing these, these kings. And Gideon stopped in Succoth and Penuel across the Jordan River. He stopped there and asked in each of those villages, he asked for food for his soldiers, and he was refused. And then he goes on, and he goes to Karkor, and he captures the Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. And then he brings them back all the way from Karko, all the way back to Ophrah. And on his way, of course, he had, he had to go through Penuel again. So when he gets to Penuel, he kills all the men of Penuel because they would not give him bread. And when he gets to Sukkoth, he takes all the elders of Sukkoth and he whips them with briars and thorns because they would not give him bread. And then he goes all the way back to, up to Ophrah with the kings. And now we see him there. We're in Ophrah. We see him coming in with these kings again. And beginning in chapter 8, verse 18, we learn that what's happening now is very different. Gideon is settling an old score. This isn't about national deliverance anymore. Earlier on, the kings had killed members of his family in battle. So he orders his son to kill these two kings. But his son hesitates. So Gideon kills them himself. This is no longer, this is no longer at all about for the Lord and for Gideon. This is all about for Gideon. And the people of Israel come to him, chapter 8, verse 22, and they say to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Who has saved them? And they, in essence, are asking Gideon to become their king, to create a dynasty in which he will rule, and then his son will rule, and then his grandson will rule after him. In effect, that's exactly what Gideon does. And as part of that, he collects gold from the spoils of what had been taken. And the Bible says that he created an ephod from that gold and he placed it in Ophrah. So you see this ephod appearing. Maybe it's clothing a statue of some sort. An ephod, just so you know, an ephod, the ephod, was the garment of the high priest of Israel. The ephod included a jewel-encrusted breastplate and it also included a pocket over the heart in which was placed or kept the Urim and the Thummim. You say, well, what were the Urim and the Thummim? 
we are not absolutely sure. Maybe there's something like dice. There's stones or sticks used in some way. The point is, the high priest used these, maybe cast these, in order to determine God's, to determine, to know God's will when the high priest was in the presence of God. That's what he did. Amazing. Now, you understand there was just one true ephod. And there was just one high priest, correct? But now Gideon has made his own ephod, and he's presumed to lead Israel as if he is being directed by God. He can no longer, he no longer distinguishes his will from God's will. Eight, chapter 8, verse 27 says, And all Israel whored after it, the ephod there in Ophrah. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So this is amazing. We've come full circle. The story of Gideon began at Ophrah, where Gideon, with a very deep awareness of his inadequacy, his weakness, his fear, tore down the family altar to Baal at night because he was afraid. And there also, we're told, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he first gathered his army. That's where it began. But now our story ends also at Ophrah, where Gideon has created, in effect, another altar for the Lord and for Gideon. And he's clothed himself in spiritual garb. And he's lost all discernment. He's lost all sense. It ruined him. Pride ruined him. The religious culture did not defeat him. An infesting enemy did not defeat him. But it was the unrecognized enemy from within that defeated him. It was pride. And to Gideon and his downfall, we can add a host of kings who followed, who began well and ended poorly. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Hezekiah, there are many. Pride is not strength. Pride is weakness. Pride is defeat. And though we as human beings often rely on our pride to beat down lesser sins, some lust, some addiction, cowardice, rage, I'm better than that. I'm not going to do it because I'm better than that. We use pride often to beat down lesser sins, but when we do, we have accomplished nothing except to make pride our master and to cut ourselves off from God. C.S. Lewis writes, the devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you become chaste and brave and safe, self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting you up for the dictatorship of pride. As if he's happy to cure your headaches in order to give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. The knowledge of our inadequacy the knowledge of our weakness, you know, the knowledge of our fears. That is not weakness. That knowledge is not 
weakness. That acknowledgement is not weakness. It is, it is wisdom. And boasting in our, of our inadequacy or our weakness, did Paul not teach, is not foolish. It is weak. Go ahead, boast in them. Acknowledge them. This is what I am, in fact. So the power of Christ may rest on you. And there is no pagan altar in your heart. Let's pray.